Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Faith Palmer Person, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and your chair for this evening's program. We also welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us on the Internet at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Todd Poglia. Before joining Forest Ethics in 1999, Todd was an attorney for Ralph Nader, focusing on issues such as environmental purchasing of governmental agencies to spur alternative markets, enforcement of antitrust laws, corporate welfare issues, and corporate accountability. Since joining Forest Ethics, Tom and his colleagues have had a significant impact on the paper policies of major companies such as Dell, Staples, Office Depot, Williams-Sonoma, and others, including most recently Victoria's Secret. Um, we will be taking questions directly from the audience at the end of um, Todd's presentation. Please speak clearly into the microphone so our radio listeners can hear your questions. Todd, this evening, Todd will be speaking on the new environmentalism, using corporate power for social change. Todd, the floor is yours. Don't want to hide over there too much. <clears throat> so I grew up in upstate New York. Uh, we were kind of corporate gypsies. My dad got promoted every couple of years, and so every few years we would move. But we had the longest stretch um, during my childhood in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. And it was a beautiful place to grow up. Um, as far as I know, the forest behind my house never ended and I spent most of my childhood years there. Um, and when I wasn't in the woods, I was down the road uh, at my friend's, at this lake called Swinging Bridge Lake, which was um, a place where my best friends, Michael and Billy Croissant, uh, their parents owned a marina. We spent a lot of time on the lake causing all kinds of trouble. We were kind of the three musketeers of trouble. <laughs> and um, one year, uh, during the summer, we noticed there was a couple of new residents on the lake. Um, there were these two huge, beautiful white swans. And as kind of 12-year-olds, we didn't take that much notice of them. But about halfway through the summer, one of them disappeared. And so we kind of took a little bit of notice, and, but weren't that interested. We were interested much more in the girls from the city who were up for the summer. So, um, but then we got a little more interested in what happened because one of our friends said that one, the swan that was missing was in this guy's garbage can. And so now everything became a little bit different for us. Now it wasn't just some animal that we kind of sort of took notice of. Now it was our swan. Um, and the person that did it was from the city. And there was this whole divide in my community from city people to people that lived in the country. And we were about two hours from New York, so people came up for the summer. Um, and not only that, the swan was now was murdered. Um, and we knew nobody would do anything about it unless we did. So we started coming up with a plan. And we came up with dozens of different plans. Um, and then one night, we were down on the beach. It was late. 
why I was out this late on a school night. It's about 11 o'clock. I have no idea, but my parents were not keeping very good track of me, obviously. Um, so about 11 o'clock, we look across the cove, which is a couple hundred yards, and we see this guy who murdered this swan. So the lights go out in his house. So we thought this was the time to, to act. Uh, we took off all of our clothes, and we went down into the water very slowly and swam across, and we were doing this kind of breaststroke because we didn't want to cause any ripples on the surface of the lake. And it was a starless, moonless night. And little by little, we made our way, and it's really slow swimming like this. So we made our way across the cove, and we had this whole plan that we would come out of the water with our hands kind of glued to our side so there were no drips of water that would alert the community to our activities. And so we did this, came out of the water, and we saw what we were after. And this guy's brand-new Zodiac motorboat, one of these float- inflatable motorboat things that was kind of the envy of the lake. And we took the knives out of our mouths. We had swum across the cove <laughs> with knives in our mouths, and we sunk his boat. And then we got back into the water, slunk back in, swam back across the cove. But before we had left, actually, we brushed our tracks away so they didn't know whether the attack came by land or sea. <laughs> and we gained, went back, got out of the water, um, and that was my first environmental act. And it was a very inauspicious start. <laughs> but the strange thing is, <clears throat> looking back on that experience, uh, there were parts of it that in my early career sort of were in parallel to that, um, and uncomfortably so. Uh, we did a, my early career was doing a lot of protests and, and kind of outside sort of stuff. And looking back on that experience, there were some strange parallels like not a lot of communication between me and the target. Certainly no good communication. Um, not a lot of good information flow back and forth. Um, we're not even sure if this guy actually did anything. Maybe the goose was, or the swan was just dead and he put it in the garbage. Um, and also, very, the, the, there wasn't a whole lot of strategy to this. We were just acting out, and, and I think there's a lot of environmentalism over the last 30 years that is really about how I feel as an actor and less about what is the impact, what's the effect, um, and what are we actually trying to accomplish. Because at the end of this set of shenanigans, there wasn't anything different in the world. Um, and it was more kind of lifestyle-oriented decision-making, like, what's going to make me feel good? And what am I going to do to get back at that guy? Um, and I think that that's a strain that actually runs through a lot of environmentalism over the last 30 years, and um, certainly did in my early career. So flash forward 20 years. I'm a young lawyer in Washington, D.C., working for Ralph Nader. And at that point, there was only a handful of ways that I was familiar with to make change happen. You could sue people. You could try to pass legislation. And there were land trusts and other things you could do, regulatory reform, uh, but really not that much. Um, So I started trying to make my way through this morass, um, trying to figure out what I should put my energy towards. And so I had some experiences with legislation um, that I was kind of kept up to date on as I was going through law school, uh, one of which was the National Recycling Act which uh, was a really radical notion that people were required to include recycled content in their packaging and all kinds of, you know, semi-communist plots in that one. Um, So this one was 
one of these situations where it actually was not a bad bill. It was going forward on Capitol Hill. Um, the environmental side managed to get six lobbyists to push this bill forward, which was an incredible accomplishment. And a lot of people were thinking, this is it. We're going to do it. Um, there were 450 industry lobbyists. And this, you know, this, so the game was a little bit stacked. Not only were there 450 industry lobbyists, they were all giving the people they were lobbying lots of money. The six environmentalists, not handing out a lot of big checks. So you know where that went. So I thought early on in my career, not going to do a lot of legislation. So then I thought I would try my hand at litigation. You know, Nader had a long history of accomplishing some amazing things with litigation. And I was taking on some huge companies like Bell Atlantic and others on some very arcane things around providing Internet access to low-income areas and providing it cheaply. And uh, the problem there is the deck was a little stacked also. Um, I was a lone attorney with no budget. Uh, no, I couldn't pay my expert witnesses, and there were very technical cases. You needed one. On the other side, there were 10 attorneys. There were 20 paralegals. There were three paid experts. Um, and I knew that I kind of hit the, my, my low, and I was going to not do this kind of work anymore when I was negotiating with my expert witness who was volunteer um, and a, a professor, and we came up with this whole idea that if we actually switch his course load for the next semester... So that he teaches all of his courses on Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's a 60% chance that I'll have my expert at the trial. <laughs> so I said, okay, enough of that. So then I ended up inheriting yet another job. And, you know, have people heard of Nader's Raiders? Yeah? Well, I was a Nader's Raider, but, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was a lot cooler <laughs> to be a Nader's Raider. I was a Nader's Raider in the 90s. <laughs> and there weren't that many of us. And so we all had four or five different jobs. One of the jobs that just I sort of inherited was this thing called the Government Purchasing Project. And it was one of Ralph's kind of brain children. The idea was, let's use the 20% of the GDP that is goods and services bought by the government, and let's use it to spur environmental products, less toxic products, safer products. Um, and it was actually having huge impacts and had been for decades kind of working in the shadows of, of the, the government. Seat belts, airbags, there's a number of reforms that were brought online by this project because it gave companies a start. And you know, like, for example, a fleet order of 5,000 cars with airbags is kind of what got that started and proved to the industry they could do it. So this is my, I took over this project and my job was to get the federal government to buy recycled paper. And we weren't going to sue them. There wasn't really a legislative angle. Um, so we figured we were going to run a campaign and try and make this happen. So in a period of months, we started meeting with agency heads. We started trying to unlock, like, what are the problems with why they're not buying recycled when they kind of made a commitment to do it? Um, what are the barriers? Um, at the same time, we also started pushing them, and uh, government employees started sending us inside information on the amount of compliance. They were actually... Even though they had agreed to use recycled paper, they're at about 9%, 9% compliance. Not a lot of recycled paper getting bought. Um, little by little, we started ramping up the campaign, kind of embarrassing them, getting some local press in D.C., and we got a couple of agencies to go ahead and start using recycled paper. And they, you know, this is kind of typical bureaucracy sort of story, but they had a problem in that 
people that were bureaucrats for 20 or 30 years always ordered paper with the same code. It was like 4466. And that was like regular paper. So we came, talked with the programmers and the agency people, and we said, well, how about for all, like, all this type of paper, if they put 4466 or 4467 or whatever, let's just fulfill the order with recycled paper. And the agency heads like DOD, Department of Justice, said, brilliant, let's do that. Um, so they started doing that, and then it became even more embarrassing because some agencies were buying recycled and some agencies weren't. Uh, and then I placed an, uh, an op-ed in the Sunday Washington Post, and that kind of put it over the top. So in a period of months, we went from 9% compliance to 90% compliance. They became the largest buyer of recycled paper in the world, 18 billion sheets of recycled paper per year. And for me, this was an incredible change. Um, I wasn't going uphill. I wasn't out, outnumbered and outmanned at every step. We were actually taking them on in a way that they found very hard to fight us uh, because we were right. We were actually trying to be solution-oriented. Um, and for me, that kind of like just unlocked something in my thinking, and I just thought, this is how I'm going to spend my time. It was around that time that I heard about Forest Ethics, the group I'm still with. And the idea of Forest Ethics was to use these market forces, but to do so on a bigger stage, to take the entire U.S. market the Fortune 1000 plus, and try and figure out what kind of leverage can we get there. And I'll tell you where Forest Ethics was born was on the west coast of Vancouver Island, up in, up in Canada. Clackwood Sound was the last old-growth river valley left on Vancouver Island. It was the site of the biggest civil disobedience in Canadian history. There were hundreds of people arrested. Uh, Midnight Oil came in and played a concert, and, and then a whole bunch of more people got arrested. I'm sure Bono was there somewhere. Um, and little by little, through all this protest arrest and everything, the River Valley was still being taken apart. It was still being logged. Thousand-year-old trees being felled to go into newsprint. And so this group of folks on the ground there had an idea that nothing else is working. Let's just see where this paper and wood is going. Who's buying it? Do they know what they're paying for? And so this group of it was like eight women, one man, which is probably a pretty good ratio to get anything started, came up with this idea and started writing letters to big companies in the U.S. marketplace, seeing if they were buying from Macmillan Blodell, the logging company. And all of a sudden, these companies are up in arms, and the whole concept that the customer is always right, if the customer doesn't want to be buying rainforest paper, then the logging company that supplies them needs to figure something out. And all of a sudden, from huge amounts of effort resulting in very little leverage, um, we had this key to success. And New York Times, PacBell, other companies started writing in saying, hey, I don't want my paper from the last old-growth rainforest valley on Vancouver Island. And that stopped the logging. And it was the only thing that worked, and it was kind of the last-ditch effort. And that was the seed that, that sprouted the tree um, that is forest ethics today. And that is the kind of strategy we've been using for years, taking on companies in a way that's very different, taking on companies, first of all, where they're weak and where we're strong, in the court of public opinion. While we can't out-lobby them or you know, out-lawyer them, we can certainly outmaneuver them in the court of public opinion. We were also, going even back to Clackwood Sound, the early days, we were willing to own part of the problem 
and try and figure out a solution. Actually, the way that valley ended up getting protected was this whole science panel of independent scientists came in um, to try and figure out what's best for the river valley. And what's best for it, surprisingly, was to not clear-cut log it. Um, so that, that little bit of seed kind of sprouted into us running campaigns um, in the Great Bear Rainforest in Canada, the Inland Temperate Rainforest in Canada, the rainforest in Chile. Um, and over the last you know, 12 years or so that we've been around, depending on how you count, we've had several different births. Um, we've protected about 7 million acres uh, worldwide. And we're very small. We think that the possibility is great to actually double, triple, quadruple that number in the next few years. Lafcadio is looking nervous. He works with me. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that people, people sometimes say is <clears throat> it's an awful lot of effort just to protect trees. I don't say that. But um, is it really worth all that work? And I was on the, an interview a couple of weeks ago with Time Magazine doing a follow-up on one of our campaigns. And at the end of the interview, this Time Magazine reporter said, Okay, the interview's over. I want to ask you a question off the record. I said, okay. I was a little bit nervous. And he said, with all the problems in the world, do you feel like you can justify your time doing this, protecting trees? And I said, God, I hope so. Um, <clears throat> I said, absolutely. Have you heard of climate change? He had heard of it. Um, <laughs> And I said, do you know that it's almost, it's, it's actually, as far as the earth is concerned, it's an equivalent to go out in the parking lot and start up a gas-guzzling SUV. It's the same as cutting down a tree. Actually, worldwide, the destruction of forests provo- uh, produces more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation sector. 18% of global greenhouse gas emissions are from forest destruction. 14% are from all the trains, planes, and automobiles in the world. And so, like many environmental issues that we're facing, it's not just about forests, but for me, forests are very near and dear to my heart. The future of humanity, the future of this planet, and the future of forests are inextricably linked. And so, yeah, I thought I could justify my time on this issue. And this is why we are facing, we are facing so many challenges today. We need this kind of new thinking, these kind of market-based campaigns. Forest ethics isn't the only one doing it, but this, these are the kind of campaigns that can have huge impacts for small dollars. Has anyone here heard of our Victoria's Secret campaign? Anybody? Yeah? Good. Quite a few. So... We were looking at, when we look at whole sectors, we don't just look at a bad, you know, we don't find a company that's bad and try and get them to change. We're trying to see if we can create a domino effect. So we did office supplies, Staples, Office Depot, Office Max, got them to reform their purchasing practices. They're not perfect. They're a lot better than they were. We then started looking at catalogs. Picked Victoria's Secret as, as our main target, as the start of that campaign. And first of all, they were an incredibly large uh, mailer of catalogs. Does anybody in this room not get one? Okay. There's a couple of you. you they're they're going to get you. They send out about a million a day all year long. And 
we also picked them because they're pulling their fiber, a lot of it, from Canada's boreal forest, one of the most important forests in the world, one of the largest roadless wilderness areas left on this planet, and one of our first lines of defense when we look at climate change. We also picked them, as we've said far too many times at Forest Ethics, because they made for a sexy target. <laughs> now, we, as with all of our campaigns, we tried to talk to them, tried to talk to them, tried to talk to them. For some reason, they didn't really want to talk to us that much. Um, but we kept trying to have those conversations, and it never really got, we hit, we hit a really low glass ceiling. It never really got beyond, uh, like, the health environment guy, who was really nice and liked us. But he couldn't really do anything. And in fact, in the midst of our conversations, they signed a two-year contract, locking them into a struggle with us and guaranteeing a campaign. A two-year contract with one of the worst companies producing catalog paper. So the campaign was launched. Uh, we did all kinds of protests. All, we did a New York Times ad, several New York Times ads. Um, protests at their stores, I think 750 or so protests at their stores. Uh, at the same time we were doing that, we were meeting with them behind the scenes, trying to build a bridge to a positive future with them. Even though we're attacking them in the field, we wanted to make sure that they understood we don't see them as enemies, we don't see them as bad people. Um, and in fact, one of the things I do in, these, in our first meetings with companies, because they usually think we're kind of aliens, is uh, I just ask them, we have, we'll have a lunch meeting, and I'll say, for the first half hour, let's just not talk about work. And the first five minutes are really uncomfortable. Um, and then pretty soon they realize that, you know, we have kids. They have kids. And they always want to tell us, I love hiking. So it usually happens in the first ten minutes. So they can't be all that bad. Um, so as the campaign is ramping up and getting more and more vigorous and pointed, so are our conversations, and we're trying to make sure that they understand that we own the solution. It's a joint problem, and we're going to solve it together. So short, st short version of the story is at the end of last year, uh, they ended up announcing a, a new policy with us. Um, they were going to get out of endangered forests. They were going to make sure they don't log in caribou range, which is caribou. If you overlay caribou range with old-growth forests, it's almost an exact match sent shockwaves through the entire Canadian logging industry. They agreed to shift to recycled, Forest Stewardship Council, certified fiber. Um, they canceled the contract with one of the worst logging companies in Canada. It was, we're estimating it was between 10 and 20 million a year. For the first time ever, that logging company has come to the table and is now talking about protected areas. Had never talked to us about that before. But the most exciting thing was actually after the campaign, because we are trying to treat this company with respect and give them a chance to change, even though we were hammering them in the media and in the field, um, what's happened since the campaign ended is even more exciting. So part of our agreement with them is that they're going to be an advocate for change within their industry and with governments. So we took them up on it and we said, let's do some joint lobby meetings. We want you to come and meet with the government of Ontario. We all fly into Toronto, go to this meeting, the government is very interested that Victoria's Secret is there, uh, and they start going into a whole spiel of, you know, regulatory reform and blah, 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 and you can imagine the teacher's voice in Charlie Brown, wah, 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 and at the end of it, the guy from Victoria's Secret, Tom Katzenmeyer, senior VP, says, 
you know, I don't know a whole lot about the regulations, but I do know this. We spend $100 million a year on paper, and if forest ethics is happy with what you're doing, with the forest you're protecting, shifting the recycled, we might spend some of that here. And the guys from, from government basically fell out of their seats. This is the company that we had, from their view, we had been beating up for two years, and here they were saying they're only going to do business if, if forest ethics is happy. And that's the power of these kind of campaigns that can shift not just what people buy and sell, but can shift how they think, can shift their entire sense of themselves. They had been thinking about themselves, Victoria's Secret, as a bad guy. And for the first time, they get to think of themselves as trying to do something good. And they're now, they flew into British Columbia and lobbied the British Columbia government with us. They're going to be lobbying their peers in the catalog industry and telling the story of the forest ethics campaign and saying, don't go through the campaign. Meet with them right now and change. (laughs) And I think as I'm looking at the future, looking at the challenges that we have uh, and the struggles that we're going to have as as a people over the next 10 years plus, you know, it used to be that people would be, uh, you know, thought of as kind of visionary if they were coming up with the 100-year plan, the 1,000-year plan. Actually, things are so urgent now, we need a 10-year plan. We don't have that much time. If you look at climate change, species loss, habitat loss, for example, worldwide, 75% of all of our original forest cover is lost or, dest- or destroyed or degraded. In the United States, we have about 5% of our original forest cover left. Now, if you look at those issues, climate change, species loss, habitat loss, we're actually kind of beyond the tipping point, which means that we have a whole new sense of urgency for our work and for everyone in this room and everyone beyond to think about new ways of doing things, new solutions, thinking more like entrepreneurs. What's the opening here? How can we move this issue forward in a non-traditional way? That's what these market campaigns that Forest Ethics runs are all about. And I think that they need to go from the small entrepreneurial groups that tend to do them right now to the bigger and bigger and bigger groups. Or those groups need to grow and grow and grow and bring that approach to all the problems that we're facing. Because if you think about the whole tipping point, what's it take to tilt it back? A lot. And that's that's what we're up against. And at the same time, there's all kinds of new strategies. I feel like all the strategies in the world isn't necessarily enough to save this planet. Part of it goes back to that story I started off with, the crazy kids swimming across that lake at midnight (laughs) with knives in their mouth (laughs) and (laughs) naked. Uh, And there's so much about that night that, um, you know, that I kind of regret, and um, I don't feel that bad, but, you know, I shouldn't have done it, and I think that there's so many parts of it that just didn't make a lot of sense, and I wish I could leave behind, but there is a part of it that I don't want to leave. And that is the willingness to put yourself at risk. To do something, and to do it now. If we can take some of these new strategies 
and marry those new strategies to just doing something right now. That's the best chance we have. Thank you. We'll be taking questions from the audience. I'd like to know your opinion of the Forest Stewardship Council. Well, we have gotten an awful lot of Forest Stewardship Council wood and paper uh, sold. We actually play a sort of interesting um, business development role. That's the other thing that's, that's sort of innovative about our approach is that we're trying to th- do a lot of matchmaking. Forest Stewardship Council, for people that don't know, is like organic. It's the only credible certification for sustainable wood products. Um, and that's something we actually work a tremendous amount on, uh, trying to push that specific certification through wood and paper you know, in the United States and beyond. And actually, Lafcadio, can you raise your hand? If anybody has any questions, he's kind of one of our, our paper and FSC experts, um, if you want to follow up on that. But it's the only system that we think is good enough. I'm kind of curious about what you think, it may, it may not be practical at this time, but moving beyond uh, paper made from trees, even recycled paper. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's actually some really interesting possibilities out there. Um, <clears throat> I think, actually, it's a, it, there's some parallels to the energy situation, though, but probably like one of the most exciting and interesting possibilities is just using less. Uh, I think with, through efficiencies, we can actually reduce the impact uh, on forests and on the environment tremendous amounts. Um, so that's, that's where, I, you know, where I start thinking about it. And then there are other... You know, new fibers, there's a new fiber that's coming online called Arondo Donax, which needs to be rebranded, obviously. Um, but it is a, it's a plant-based fiber that is incredibly productive, seven to nine times more productive than a pine plantation, um, doesn't disturb the soil when it's harvested. There's some interesting things like that out there, but there, right now there's no silver bullet. The best silver bullet is using less. Along those same lines, uh, what about hemp? You know, um, hemp is an, is an interesting fiber. One of the things that we have a problem with, um, with hemp and a lot of agricultural-based fibers, like canaf is a sort of cousin in some ways to, to hemp, is that there's a lot of silica, um, which is a byproduct, which is very hard to deal with. This Arondo Donax, terrible name thing, actually doesn't have any silica. It's less than a uh, half a percent. So that's one of the barriers with that. Um, some of the barriers with those, those hemp and canaf fibers are also that they're not necessarily that much better on the land. Um, they're a little bit more productive than your standard uh, you know, clear cut, obviously, and a little bit better for the, for the world. But um, it's a little closer call than you might think. I would rather use hemp than, say, you know, virgin tree fiber. But as far as taking something to scale and being able to compete head-to-head, with the, tr- with the forest industry, it's just so far off. So, but, it's, but it's definitely something that I hope makes more progress in the next few years. Uh, the Bioneers, I heard some interesting um, conversations about uh, some of the Canadian forests. I think it was one yep. of the ones you mentioned about the... The boreal? 
Mm-hmm. It might have been the boreal, or else it was the um, Great Bear Rainforest. The temperate one. I don't know. Yep. Yeah, there's a there's a huge um, uh, tar sand underneath, oh, and, yeah. and 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 it actually came up in like three different speakers' um, uh, speeches. So I thought that that was really interesting, including including the natural gas line coming from Alaska and all the, yeah. all these different pieces <clears throat> putting together. I know you guys are playing a big part in that. I'd love to hear from you guys how much uh, progress is being made, and and what what is happening there because it sounded like it was a a prime lunch for some big industries that that wouldn't be very good for everyone yeah. else if they breakfast, lunch, were, and dinner yeah. more like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, the tar sands are one of the giant sucking sounds in North America. Um, it's interesting, I think, and I think this still stands that the way Canada is looking at their greenhouse gas emissions and they're looking at you know how they reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, they're having they're creating this complete loophole where they just won't count the tar sands. Um, which kind of will, I've seen some figures recently that if the tar sands go online, it will basically like double Canadian greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so it's a huge problem. And as you know, the last several years, great emphasis on energy, especially, you know, North American energy sources. So it's a massive battle that we're kind of on the fringes on right now. We have mainly focused on forest companies. This is getting us into a whole new sector and we're doing a lot of looking at it, thinking on it, seeing if there's a way that we can actually have leverage and make a difference. Um, and that's one of the things that Forest Ethics, like we really feel is key, is there's really no fight out there that we feel like, well, you just have to do something. We need to look at it strategically and figure out if our specific skill set can make a difference. And if we can, we're going to do it. But it's a huge problem. And, it's, and in fact, we're seeing this in a lot of places we're looking is that the logging industry has always been a problem, but energy companies, oil, gas, is becoming more and more of a problem for forests. Yeah. You have a follow-up? Yeah. Can I just... yeah. Um, I find it interesting. One of the first things you were talking about was um, climate change. Yeah. When the guy asked you from that magazine, I forgot what you said. Time you know, magazine. Mm-hmm. Time? How can you uh, justify this, right? One of the major justifications, and it seems to be, you know, a trump card almost is the climate change, right? Yeah. And I don't know how to trust what I've been hearing also as far as, like, the, the, the unanimous uh, science point of view, you know, as some say that it's absolutely caused by CO2. Mm-hmm. Now, the only reason I question it is, or the only reason I bring it up is, if that turns out to not be so, you know, do you think that that... Um, is something to take into consideration. Because for me, when I look at, for instance, that picture there, or any, any mm-hmm. of the first two topics that you s- spoke about, um, uh, climate, I mean, sorry, uh, species loss or, or uh, habitat loss, yeah. those seem to me just as important, if not more important. You know, they, it's not just what affects us. These, these things, if they were gone, <clears throat> if these scenarios, if these um, scenes, or what, what, I mean, really, if these life forces, life forms were gone, that, yeah. would be, that would be a major loss for, for, for humanity, for, 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 you know, humanity as a whole. Yeah. So I just wonder, um, how does that work? Because I, I wonder about, I love it that you guys are not so uh, political, it seems, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like politics <clears throat> has been taking and running with the whole uh, climate change scenario, you know, because it's such a terrible situation that we right. need to act now and then people are going we need to act now and I, we're going to do what I you know we should do what I say because we need to act now it just seems like it's getting taken and run run with you know so I don't know I'm just leaving that up to you I, I wonder as far as strat- strategically what do you think about that 
Well, I, I mean, I, I really think that uh, the climate change debate is is pretty much over at this point. Um, so we're we're definitely, you know, our our thinking on it is, let's do everything we can to to change the impacts that climate change, you know, looks like is definitely going to be having. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to do is get more and more attention on this whole issue of forests. The interesting thing about forests is, in addition to it being the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, it's one of the most economical for us to impact. So we're, that's, that's, and this is an issue that is completely missing in the debate right now in the United States. We've done a little bit of work in Canada to get it on the radar screen. Um, and in fact, if you go to our website, forestethics.org, we have a, our first kind of climate and forest report uh, is on our front page. So that might give you some more information on the issue. Um, I think it's very clear from your talk, Todd, and, and from anyone who's been following um, the environmental movement for the past several years. I mean, you guys have been so effective with so few resources and, and such a small staff. Obviously, it's because you've brought really innovative strategies to, to bear on the problem, being savvy about the media, using consumer pressure in a really intelligent way. Mm -hmm. what, what still bugs me so much is how few other organizations in the movement see those levers and use them effectively. An incredible amount of resources are continuing to be channeled into the old, ineffective strategies. And you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm just wondering what you say to them and yeah. you know, what, what <clears throat> needs to change, because obviously they, they need to be rethinking how they approach the problems, too. Yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, it's a major problem. So thanks for the question. Actually, this, this spe specific strategy right now is, is really taking root primarily in small entrepreneurial groups. And for whatever reason, that's the way it's happening. And if we were actually for-profit businesses and if people were paying us to save forests, you know, from a venture capital perspective, you know, groups like Forest Ethics, Rainforest Action Network, and others would be huge by now because there's so much bang for the buck as far as effect. Um, but things move a little more slowly in the nonprofit field, um, and I can only hope that some of those large groups, um, just to give you an idea of the layout here, is that if you look at 70% of the foundation giving in the United States, that all goes to 20, the top 25 groups. So there's an incredible emphasis on legislative and litigation approaches. Um, and I hope that's going to change. And we're also saying to some of those big groups, join us. You know, bring the, what you have as far as the science, as far as the base of supporters to our issues. And we have had some successes. For example, one of the keys to the Great Bear Rainforest, an area that we've worked on for the last decade, um, and ended up protecting about 5 million acres, 100 old-growth river valleys, not us exclusively. We were in partnership with a lot of other organizations. Um, one of the issues there was we, we came up with this crazy idea of doing a $120 million fund to fund sustainable businesses on the coast, and that is for the First Nations that live on the coast to have some alternative other than logging. So we had actually somehow managed to raise the first few million dollars, which was more than our total budget, and got the thing started, but then we couldn't finish it. So we brought TNC, the Nature Conservancy, in, and so they, in that one instance, actually had a really nice partnership with us, and I think they, for the first time, saw what a market campaign could do. So I think those are the kind of things for the future that we're trying to build those bridges between us and those huge groups that are still kind of doing the same old strategies. Okay, um, you had spoken about, you know, that you'd primarily go after the logging and timber companies. And I was just curious, my, I have two questions. The first one is mountaintop removal in Appalachia, obviously 
sort of clear cuts to get the coal out. Right. And um, so the question is, how do you guys prioritize which campaigns you're going to go after globally? Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, in addition to writing checks to forest ethics, uh, what... That's fine. <laughs> we'll stop there. No, but what advice do you have for people, you know, lay people, non-activists, to sort of engage around this issue? Yeah. Um, on picking priorities, <clears throat> we're a pretty small group, so there's only so many things we can do. And so we're also looking at our power base. Right now, our power base is U.S. corporations and where are they getting most of their fiber from, their paper and their wood. Um, and about 80% or so of what is cut in Canada comes to the United States. And so Canada is a natural link for us. We actually did some work in Chile as well um, because, again, a lot of the exports were going two companies represented 80% of the exports. And so we're looking at a combination of things. Where do we have leverage? Where is there key ecological values? Are there people on the ground that will partner with us? Um, are there people at stake? Most of the places we work, there are First Nations or indigenous people living in the forests still. So we look at all those things. And then from the 100 things we actually would like to work on, you know, we end up doing six, seven different campaigns. So it's, very, it's a very difficult choice. Um, we're hoping to grow. We've been growing fast. We'd like to grow more in order to not have to make so many hard choices and do more. Um, as far as getting involved, I really think that the best thing people can do out there is to join and get involved with the smaller groups pursuing these specific kinds of strategies. And so the, if, you're, you know, if you're into human rights, there's a great group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers that has basically held Taco Bell to, to account for how much they're paying their farm workers, the pickers that get the tomatoes that go into their taco sauce. Rainforest Action Network, they're looking at coal. Forest Ethics, we're looking at forests. There's a whole bunch of groups doing this stuff, but they all tend to be kind of small. And to get involved and do that kind of work, I think has way more impact than being the six millionth member of X group. Hello, my name is Joyce Anastasia. I have two questions. I'm familiar with the school, Presidio School of, this, of Sustainable Management, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you have any affiliation with them. Um, I, ju I just spoke there two weeks ago, and we're actually trying to get some of the MBA students to partner with us on some different um, kind of sustainable economy work that we're doing on the coast of British Columbia. So, I but no, no direct affiliation. Excellent. That's um, what I was going to recommend. Oh, okay. Uh, they have an incredible resource of students who are from all over the United States and abroad who can help in many ways, uh, either through volunteerism or or internships. Yep. Uh, the second part of my question is related to um, forest ethics. I've only vaguely heard about, and I'm wondering why. And I'm wondering <clears throat> how is it that we can create a groundswell around this, like many major corporations create groundswells around areas of interest they have. Uh, why aren't there a million people helping with forest eth ethics? And, and what are your thoughts and ideas around how to kind of market yeah. this or bring it into the forefront? I think about that every day. <laughs> um, I think for, you know, for the American public in, in, in you know, being specific to, to this country is that there, at least from our experiences, that we're growing and we're growing pretty fast, but there needs to be some more direct connection to their daily lives and you don't want to just come up with something that's a campaign that has, 
an element that's connected to people's daily lives, but, but maybe not the big environmental impact. So we've been looking for those kind of things to kind of get, get our approach and our um, campaign style out there into the world. One of the things we're looking at for the future is look at doing an anti-junk mail campaign. Um, junk mail is just an incredible environmental problem. If you look at just the credit card solicitations, to provide the paper for just the credit card solicitations and that style of junk mail, um, you need to clear-cut the Rocky Mountain National Park four times a year. And that, that's just one part of it. So we're looking at that campaign launching in the fall to bring people into forest ethics to change that industry and then hopefully take all those new people and then change other industries. So we'll see if that works. But, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're getting more and more traffic. We actually, during the Victoria's Secret campaign, got to the millionth visitor in a matter of, you know, nine or ten months or so of focusing on that company. So more people are seeing it and coming in, but, you know, it's always a little slower than you want. I know one of your newer campaigns is the Save the Sierra campaign. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's close close to home. Um, 200 miles from here, there's massive clear-cutting going on. Yep. Sierra Pacific Industries is um, the biggest private landowner in the country and owns m- massive amounts of land, and they plan to clear-cut up to a million acres. Now, they are a private company, and they also have a reputation for not caring too much about what the public thinks about them. Yeah. So my question is, how can you influence a, corporate, a company like that? Yeah. Well, we're going to find out, as you know. Um, we have a, uh, a new campaign that's just getting started uh, called Save the Sierra Campaign. We're focusing on the Sierra Nevada Mountains, um, an incredibly important forest for a number of reasons, incredible carbon storage as far as climate change is concerned. Sixty percent of California's water comes from there. Um, and Sierra Pacific Industries is the big bad guy up there. And uh, we have dealt with companies that are private um, in Chile specifically. The private land ownership, was the, that was the regime there. Um, and it's a little bit different because I think SPI is used to being hated, and they're a lot less susceptible. But we actually think that we have an approach that is going to work because we're going right now, we're having conversations with Home Depot, with Lowe's, with all kinds of people that buy from SPI, and they're going to start feeling it. And I think over the next year, it's going to really ramp up, and they're going to start, they're going to start hurting. And now whether or not they ever want to do some kind of a victory deal, like I have a hard time seeing them doing what Victoria's Secret did. Um, but there's a lot of other ways to solve this problem, and we're looking at all those potential ways to solve it. So it's, I think it's going to be one of our toughest campaigns, and it's one of our most important ever. Um, I'd just like to remind the listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to Todd, Todd Paglia for Forest Ethics. Thanks. Um, I think it's rather grand that you're working in Canada, and I really commend you for the work that you're doing, but wouldn't it be better if you concentrated in the States? Because you're small. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, to, be, to be blunt, no. Um, mainly because, you know, if you look around the world, if, as far as our view of what's happening in the, you know, around the world, there's a couple of forests that we are trying to have an impact on in the United States. The southern United, southern United States, for example, tremendous amounts of paper being taken out of there, um, a lot, very few regulatory protections in place, and we're having a very sort of like arm's length relationship with that region, but trying to have some impact through our relationship with paper buyers like Staples, Office Depot, Victoria's Secret, and others. And then there's the Sierra, which we think is a globally important forest that needs to be protected. But actually, if you look at what's happening around the world, so much wood and paper 
is being produced elsewhere and other places are being destroyed to feed the United States. So that's where we've been focusing most of our attention because that's just not right. Um, And it's also a place where we have tremendous leverage on some of these companies that are selling into the United States and the buyers, the big brands in the U.S., haven't the slightest idea where it's coming from, but we're starting to tell them where it's coming from. In the uh, sustainability arguments, yep. one of the issues that people talk about is that we don't value the externalities Absolutely. of our natural resources. <clears throat> in this case, it's the, all the value that forests yep. give us. Do you know of any movement, or is forest ethics considering working with the idea of getting United States or Canada to charge tax, say, per board foot, so that the price of trees starts to be valued? Yeah. I, I mean, externalities are a huge problem. They always have been. Um, this is something that, you know, on the legislative front that is, is well beyond, you know, our capabilities right now. Um, but there is a field that's kind of growing up that's it's a little bit tangential to your, to your question, but it's called, I think it's specifically wilderness economics. They're looking at what are the actual values of standing forests for everything from carbon to, you know, people that want to locate near them in order to be able to hike to clean water to clean air. And so people are <clears throat> increasingly, you know, early in the 60s and 70s, people shied away from the economic argument. What we're finding out more and more is that the economics for leaving a forest standing are so much in our favor. And there's going to be, I think, more and more work on that in the next few years. Yeah. So along those lines, what if, uh, beyond um, helping corporations see themselves as positive change agents, what have you done to affect or to make them change based on a bottom line decision or simple sustainable business practices? And have any of the co- corporations you've worked with <laughs> seen that they can save or make money being green? Yeah, some companies have definitely saved um, in the most you know basic way. Um, you know, people look at the purchase price of recycled products, and, and in, frankly, environmental products tend to cost more, um, and they should because it just costs more to produce a cleaner, better product. Um, but that's not always the case. I'll give you an example right here in town: Wired magazine uh, switched to twenty-five percent recycled paper. Uh, and it saved them about $300,000 a year. And those are the kind of things that we're bringing to businesses and saying, let's be creative, let's look for a way to make this a win-win-win, not just for you and for the environment, but financially as well. Um, so that's definitely happening, and I think that there's a lot more room for that as we go forward and some of these environmental products come to scale. It's very hard for an environmental product, you know, for out of the gates to compete on price. It's even harder when they're one one-hundredth or one one-thousandth the size of the non-environmental products. But little by little, that's going to change as well. Next question. Yeah, you were talking earlier about how um, one of the things that will help you give you guys leverage is having more people know who you are and what you're doing and supporting yeah. you. Um, you were also talking about how when you um, did that interview with the, with the um, Time Magazine guy, that he said, you know, why you're trying to save trees. But when you explained to him that it was about climate change, he got it and it made more sense. So my, my question had to do with the branding of forest ethics itself. The name mm-hmm. itself seems to be, um, to somebody who doesn't understand the linkages, it's, it's you know, trying to save the spotted owl or trying to save the snowy plover or trying to save the trees. Like, in theory, it sounds good, but you know, I've got to make my kids dinner tonight and I've got this mm-hmm. tomorrow. Have you considered the branding of your company and rethinking that in a way that is more, it makes more immediate sense to people that it's something that they should care about? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the way we're doing more of this work is actually thinking about um, engagement points, not necessarily like changing our, our name, but looking at ways that we can bring more and more people into this work and make it easier for them to do this work, and then, which is, tends to be online, and then looking at having them move from online to more and more engagement. Um, so we're actually looking at ways to have people take action now. Um, I think less so of like kind of rebranding ourselves, um, but maybe it's something we should look at. Thanks. I'm not familiar with how the timber industry works, but I was um, intrigued by this recent deal uh, with respect to TXU and Wall Street um, taking some input on uh, coal and global warming. And I'm wondering if you see also in the investment community, beyond just companies that are in the, the timber industry, some role that the investment community in Wall Street is going to play in this? I think potentially. One of the things we've been looking at a lot recently is you know, right now, the, the whole carbon offset thing, um, I'm not a huge fan of. It's kind of like buying your way out of a crisis. I don't necessarily think it's going to work. We actually have to reduce emissions, not just buy off the emissions that we're currently making. But there's a huge role, I think, for forests to play in the future on this issue. Um, a lot of people are starting to, to look at you know, the idea of standing forest and avoided deforestation as a true carbon credit. So if you have a forest that's slated to be logged, and the, and the logging company or the government takes it offline, says, that, you know, we're going to protect it. Well, that's a huge savings of global greenhouse gas emissions. So can we get that kind of, uh, that kind of carbon offset on the Chicago trade? Possibly. It's some, one of the things that we're looking at as a way to create some economic incentive and some, you know, kind of outing some of the externalities um, in a way that, you know, makes sense to businesses, so it's dollars and cents. So we are looking at that, and I think it's actually one of the areas that could really grow in the next five years to make a huge difference. Because right now, a logging company or a government says, well, it's standing forest, we log it and get some money, or we leave it standing and we get none. So we want to change that equation. Uh, we'd like to know what is your impact that you have you guys in, uh, specifically with Latin America, do you have any relationship with organizations that work in this thing as you do? In, um, in, and also, in, 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 or the or government agency that will try to help, you know, the global warming in, in, Central, in Latin America? And also, what is your relationship with the EPA? Are you in a good relationship with them? Or? Uh, no. <laughs> we have no relationship with the EPA, as far as I know. Perhaps the FBI, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, we actually don't, we don't do work right now in, in Latin America. Um, we are working, we're now in conversation with a couple of groups that are actually working very closely on this issue of avoided deforestation and trying to secure carbon credits for saving a forest. So we are, work, we are working on that, but we're not actually engaged in Latin America right now. Other questions? You've been looking at uh, positioning yourself as a sustainability consulting company. Um, funny you ask. <laughs> um, we are actually doing a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes with companies like Dell, Williams-Sonoma, Victoria's Secret, and others uh, that right now is kind of business development and consulting. Actually, part of the process that we went through with Victoria's Secret was we decided to have a kind of open books policy as they were trying to solve their problems, and that we would help them write their RFP 
and you know had like 12 questions none of them were environmental we added like 20 something questions on the environment and we got the information back so we could help them make an informed decision you have to pay a lot of money to get an environmental consultant to do that um, we didn't get any money but that's kind of our job is to is to provide those services so so far it's been something that we're very tempted by and interested in but keeping clear lines between being a watchdog and a partner is already hard enough Money changing hands makes it even more difficult, but it's something we're looking at. It was interesting that you said you were a litiga- uh, you were into litigation before. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know anything, especially coming from the way that it's covered with all these attorneys that were fired and all that stuff politically. Um, but what I do know is that uh, the Bush administration has been filling <coughs> in a lot of. Uh, litigation forces, I, I guess, that are, that are moving more towards privatization of a lot of lands. And, I, and I, I don't know how to get a lot of really valid information on that. I, w- I was wondering what, what you could uh, speak on that. Is, is, mm. you know, somebody was talking about on the home front, you know, um, how much damage is that doing? You know, are, 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 is, is, it, is it a huge force as it seems that, that, that we're going to have for the next generation a lot of uh, judges and, and whatnot that are going to be basically selling off our lands and stuff? or Yeah. Um, you know, it's not an issue I'm really tracking all that closely. It, it sounds terribly depressing. But uh, I'm sure that Public Citizen, which is a great source for a lot of information, that uh, things that are happening inside the Beltway, um, and I think they're just publiccitizen.org. They would probably have that. Have you worked at all with any consumer packaged goods companies, or um, is the FDA too regulating as far as what they can use for recycled materials when it comes in regards in relation to food? Um, right now, actually, uh, there's only one company that can provide uh, recycled pulp that can be used for um, drug or food packaging. Um, Mississippi River Corporation is the company. Um, I think there's actually a whole bunch of barriers to using recycled for for food and other packaging that really don't make any sense. Um, but again, it's something that we're such a small group, we have to stay kind of laser-like focused on the markets and the market campaigns. And uh, it's not something that we're looking at really closely right now. But it's, it's a huge issue, and there's a tremendous amount of recycled fiber that could be going into those products. Yeah. Thank you. Um, our thanks to Todd Poglia for his comments today for Forest Ethics. We also like to thank our audiences here as well as on the radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 103rd year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.